Church in the wild. Faith in the fray. Uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Most of the verses that we will look at are the words that we will look at were contained in that little short video. We'll go ahead and read them together in just a moment. This first letter of Peter uh, is written to encourage believers who are experiencing what Peter characterized as being grieved by various trials. I think if we took just a moment to pause and think, uh, we could probably list a few uh, various trials that we have been grieved by of late. Uh, and the reality is, and I think what Scripture teaches us, and I think this is important for us to understand, is that these various trials that, uh, again, were being experienced by Peter's brothers and sisters in Christ in this first generation of the Church of Jesus Christ have really been the experience of every generation of Christian throughout history uh, and, and will continue to be until Jesus returns. In spite of what has been widely taught and embraced within the church, the Christian life is not exempt from hardship and suffering. I think sometimes, and again, you can just uh, think about this in your own heart and mind, I think sometimes that Christians are tempted to think that if their life begins to be troubled or if suffering comes or tragedy or difficulty, that somehow God is punishing them for something that they've done or something that they haven't done. They just haven't quite lived up to uh, God's expectation, and so they're, <clears throat> they're suffering because of it. And I just want to dispel any such thoughts in your mind. Uh, I do believe that there are times that the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of sin, uh, troubles us in our spirit because of something that we are thinking that's not right, something that we are doing that is wrong. But Peter writes to people who were seeking to live up to the calling of God in their life. These men and women loved the Lord. Uh, they were living for Jesus. Uh, and they were doing so under difficult uh, circumstances. And again, that's what God has called us to do. We are not exempt simply because we are Christians from the hardship, the suffering, the trials that characterize our life as human beings. I mean, the reality is we live in a fallen world. Paul, in the book of Galatians, describes the world in which we live with these words, the present evil age. That's the age that we live in. That's the age that the contemporaries of Peter lived in, the present evil age. Uh, life will be hard in this present evil age. And it will be hard for Christians because of our faith in Jesus Christ and our obedience to the gospel. The reality is we are often misunderstood in this present evil age. Misunderstood by our own families when we seek to serve the Lord, honor the Lord, live for the Lord. Misunderstood in the workplace because there are just certain things that we might uh, no longer participate in that we once participated in. Uh, certain standards that we have determined that we will live by while the rest of uh, our world 
uh, seems to ignore those standards or even consider those standards silly, old-fashioned, outdated. That's the kind of difficulties that we are talking about here. And that's the kind of difficulties that we will experience uh, in our world. So what happens is, as we seek to serve the Lord, as these early Christians sought to serve the Lord, they too suffered uh, being misunderstood. Uh, they, they became marginalized. Uh, and, and that will be true for us. I mean, Paul just makes it exceptionally clear when he writes to Timothy and simply says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. Suffer persecution. Now, we've been blessed in the United States of America because Christianity has been considered since the very beginning of our nation <clears throat> as, a, as kind of a foundational element of who we are. Uh, and so for centuries now, it has been accepted. Uh, I think maybe perhaps today we might say it's, it's been tolerated. Uh, but again, we are not exempt from these trials that Peter uh, speaks to in this letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's the thing. <clears throat> Along with the presence of these hardships, these various trials... Peter also reminds us that we live in the presence of God. Now, isn't that a comfort to us this morning? Uh, yes, this is a fallen world. Yes, Christians will be misunderstood, marginalized in this world. Yes, we will experience persecution, suffering, simply because of our faith in Christ. Yes, those things are true. But we also can always count on the fact that God knows. He knows us. He knows our circumstances. He knows the times in which we live. You know, don't get the idea that because God is eternal, somehow he's not up to date on current cultural norms. God knows the hearts and minds of men and women. He always has. He knows what we live in and how we are called upon to live in this world. He knows the difficulties of living according to that heavenly call that he has called us to. But in spite of that... We can always trust that he is with us. And again, how is he with us? Well, he provides for us, right? Uh, I mean, lavishly provides for us. He protects us. He preserves us. All of these things for our good. Again, in spite of the wickedness that we see in the world. I mean, I mean over this last few days, we've just seen all kinds of wickedness in the world. And yet, God is good. Don't ever think for a moment that he's not. And God's in control. Don't ever think for a moment that he's not. He is providing for, protecting, preserving his people. We can trust him to do that. And he does all of that for our good and for his glory. Therefore, as Peter intends for his audience to be, we too should be encouraged. And, and encouraged to remain faithful in the midst of this hardship. Faithful in the fray is kind of the subtitle, or faith in the fray, the subtitle for this series, Church in the Wild. Fray is a word that speaks of kind of a prolonged struggle, a sustained struggle. And, and, and we could characterize our lives today as that. We, we live our lives in the fray. And what Scripture tells us is that we are to exercise faith in the fray. Uh, 
You ever heard somebody speak of losing their faith? Sometimes, because of difficulties in life, people are tempted to lose their faith. And again, we don't have time to go into what that may mean or not mean, but for our purposes today, what Peter is encouraging us to do is in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the hardship, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the trials, continue to walk with God, continue to trust God. Continue to live for the Lord. Continue to do what God has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light to do. And be encouraged in the doing of it. We ought to be able to say along with Job, you know, when you think of somebody who suffered in the Bible, you know, often our minds go to Job, right? Job suffered terribly. Uh, perhaps if we compare our lives and the suffering that we've experienced to Job's life and the suffering that he experienced, we think, well... You know, Job's got us. But Job was the one that said this in the midst of his suffering. He said, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Amen. Job was living with faith in the fray. He experienced more hardship than we can ever imagine, more tragedy than any of us have ever experienced before. But Job was faithful. He knew something. Really, he knew someone. And the reality for us today is that someone that Job knew who he referred to as his Redeemer, we know is Jesus Christ, right? Amen. And we know that Jesus has promised that one day he's going to come back and he's going to take us home to be with him in heaven. What a wonderful comfort that should be. And while we wait, Peter reminds us that we will often be tested by these fiery trials. That's another way he describes the hardships of life. But in the midst of those fiery trials, he tells us a little bit later on in chapter 4 of his letter that we are to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings. Now you think about that. Paul, of course, he, he prayed for us and, and, and expressed his own desire to, to fellowship in Christ's sufferings. Paul knew the value of suffering for Jesus. I think that many modern Christians see no value at all in suffering for Jesus. But there's a value in suffering for Jesus because we know from Scripture that following faithful suffering, what comes? Glory comes, right? Victory comes. Jesus suffered and died and then he rose from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And that principle of suffering preceding glory is still true for us today. There is value in faithfully suffering for Christ. As a matter of fact, Peter even says that we rejoice because we, we share in Christ's sufferings. And he says, and when you do that, you do that that you may also rejoice and be glad in his, when his glory is revealed. In other words... Suffering now as we wait for Christ's return ensures that we will be able to rejoice when he does return, knowing that we have shared his very sufferings in our own lives and experiences. So that's what Peter's going to be talking about. And we're going to be looking at this letter for the next several weeks. Probably it'll carry us right on in through the summer and into the fall. So with that, let's read together 1 Peter chapter 1. We're just going to read the introduction there. Verses 1 and 2, the words will be here on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. 1 Peter 1, 
verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for, the, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let me, let me pray with you, and we'll, we'll get into this text. Father, we are so thankful today that we share in a common experience, not only with Jesus, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout all the ages. Lord, we, we do indeed suffer, but we never suffer alone. Um, we suffer together, and, and we are put here together in order to encourage and to comfort one another through our times of suffering. Ultimately, we know that you, God, are the God of all comfort, the God of all mercies. You comfort us in all of our afflictions, and you do so, you tell us, in order that we might be able to comfort others with the very same comfort with which we have been comforted by you. And so we thank you today, Lord, for your presence and the comfort that comes as a result of your presence. And Lord, our desire this morning is that you would speak to our hearts to bring a real sense of calm or peace to our lives. Lord, there is a turmoil, a tragedy all around us. Lord, every day we wake up to a new tragic headline. Some of these terrible things are happening right here and at home, others happening far away around the world. Lord, but all around us, uh, people are suffering, struggling. And, and Lord, again, your church is not exempt from that. But remind us, Father, that in Jesus there is joy and peace. Strength to stand in times of difficulty. Lord, again, not, not a strength that we have in and of ourselves, but a strength that you provide for us. It's your strength. The very power of Jesus in us that we sang about just a moment ago. So, Lord, open our hearts. And I, I pray that, that through this series of messages, Lord, that you would strengthen your church. I pray that week after week we would see growth, uh, maturity taking place in our own lives. And, Lord, that we might also see empty seats filled one by one uh, as people come in search uh, of comfort, hope, peace, joy. So, Lord, we just want you to know today, as always, that we love you so much and we thank you so much for loving us. We give you praise, honor, and glory today in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter begins this letter in typical Hebrew fashion. Uh, he, first of all, identifies himself as the author. Um, then he identifies his audience, those to whom he writes, and then he greets them and goes into his formal address, uh, his concerns, uh, his encouragement uh, throughout the remainder of the letter. And so he, he identifies himself, first of all, by his name, a name we're familiar with, Peter. Uh, of course, we know that this was not always this disciple's name, right? Originally, uh, his name was Simon or Simeon. Uh, in another language, Aramaic, Cephas. Uh, but Jesus gave him this name following Peter's great confession of faith. You remember the time that Jesus was with his disciples 
and he asked the disciples this question, who do the people say that I am? And of course, there were various answers that were given in response to that. Some think you're uh, Elijah, some think you're the prophet, some think you're this, some think you're that. And so Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter spoke up in Matthew 16, 16, and he said, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And of course, we know at that moment that Jesus told Peter, that's right. <laughs> but flesh and blood didn't get, tell you that. that. That truth came from your father in heaven. And he said, and it's upon this rock that I'm going to build my church. And that's exactly what the name Peter means. It means rock. And many have mistakenly taught that Jesus was saying upon the rock Peter that he was going to build his church. Uh, but what he was really saying is that the testimony of Peter, the confession of Peter, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, sent by the true and living God, that, that Jesus is the only hope for man's salvation, that was the rock, the solid rock, the firm foundational message upon which God would build his church. So Peter identifies himself. Again, I'm, I'm quite certain that the minute he wrote those, that word, that name, uh, and the minute it was read, everybody that was listening knew exactly who he was. He was, a, he was a great leader, a known leader. And again, don't forget, Peter's the guy that uh, often shot off his mouth when he shouldn't. Uh, he's the guy that denied Jesus three times. Uh, on the night of his arrest, just as Jesus had told him he would do when Peter said, look, I, I'll, I'll, I'll die with you if that's what it requires. And that very night denied the very man that he had said he would die for three times, the last time with curses. So that's the Peter. And so remember, when we think of Peter as this great leader, and he was, when we think of Peter as this great biblical example of faith, and he was, remember, he was just like us. He didn't always get it right. Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me just kind of share what that, that meant. Peter was one of those men personally chosen by Jesus to be his disciple. All right? That was one of the, the requirements to be called an apostle. Personally chosen by Jesus to be his disciple. He was also an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, another requirement. He was appointed by the Lord himself to be a leader and a teacher within the church. He was sent out or commissioned by God from whom he received direct revelation in order to authoritatively proclaim the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. That, that's, all of that is wrapped up in this idea of being an apostle. Now, the, the, the simple definition of an apostle is this, one sent by God or one sent with a message. Of course, we know when we're talking about the disciples or when we're talking about our own commission in this world, we are, we are sent by God with a message, the message of the gospel that we're to carry into the world. And so in that sense, we, like Peter, have been entrusted uh, with God's message to the world. We can consider ourselves apostles in that sense, but not in the, not in the technical sense. Uh, but Peter was an apostle in the technical sense, chosen by Jesus, 
eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, appointed by the Lord to lead and to teach within the church, receive direct revelation, and, and, and of course, so that he could proclaim an authentic message so that, uh, again, people would know that his message was not his own message. It was the very message of God. And so, again, when we think of an apostle, one sent with a message, included in this sending is the authority of the one by whom we're sent. In other words, Peter could speak with the authority of Jesus Christ. Christ was the one who had sent him into the world with the gospel. And so he spoke, again, not on his own authority, not on the authority of some counsel of man, but he spoke with the authority of God. The words of Peter, therefore, the words that we're about to study and that we're going to be engaging in for the next several weeks, these words are not simply the advice of a wise and trusted counselor. All right? As important as it is to have wise and trusted counselors and to listen to them, uh, don't think of these words in that category. These are not merely uh, the opinion of an experienced and knowledgeable theologian. The words that we're going to be examining this morning and for the next several weeks, really the words we examine every Sunday morning around here, right? These are the inspired and authoritative words of God. This is God's message to us, not just Peter's message to us. Peter spoke with the authority of God. He spoke God's words. He wrote God's words. Not just his own thoughts and words, but God's. So, these words are to be embraced as truth and to be acted upon in obedience and faith. That's really what's wrapped up in that term apostle. When you see the word apostle, think authority. Peter wrote and spoke and preached with the authority of God. And therefore, he was to be listened to. And the words that he proclaimed were to be embraced as truth and acted upon it. And church, that's, that's true for us. Just make up your mind right now. These words that we're about to, to get into, the truths, the principles, the precepts that we are going to see revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, these are not just for our intellectual edification. These words are words that we are to live by, cling to. You know, I'm reading a book right now, and the, the author of the book said that if we really believe that God's Word is the inspired Word of God, that it's God's words and not just the words of Peter or Paul or Moses, if we really believe that it's God's words, then our Bible should be the very most important book, matter of fact, the most important possession that we own. But how often do we treat the Bible as if it's the most important thing that we own? The reason for that is because we lose sight of the reality of what the Bible is. We begin to think of it as a book, just a book. It's not just a book, it's the living Word of God. Amen. Amen. So, these words are to be embraced, acted upon, obeyed, followed, uh, not just heard or read and forgotten. Peter is our author, and he writes to an audience, and again, I just want us to know today that, that we too are the audience to whom Peter writes. 
Peter's going to go to great lengths here in this one verse. It's amazing how much information is here. He's going to tell us who we are. We sang that song a minute ago, I am who you say I am. Yeah. We're about to look at who God says we are. All right? This is who God says we are. Look at, look at the next words there. After Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling of His blood. That's a description of who we are in Christ. We'll start with that word elect, that scary little word elect. That troubling little word elect. And again, I hope you will just come to terms today with the fact that if you are in Christ, you are one of God's elect. All right? That's not because I think that, even though I do. It's because God's word says that. Now, that word could also be translated as chosen. If you're more comfortable with that word, I'm fine with that. Chosen by God. God's elect. God's chosen ones. Uh, I used a word yesterday in a memorial service that we are God's saints. Uh, I think many Christians are uncomfortable with that designation because they don't consider themselves saintly. And all I would say to you is this, if you don't consider yourself saintly, get with it. <laughs> What's stopping you? Nowhere in Scripture are we taught that we will ever be perfect, that we will follow Christ perfectly, that we will live perfectly. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught that. So we're not talking about perfection here. When we talk about Jesus and Jesus alone, we're talking about perfection. But this word elect simply means those chosen by God. It speaks of the loving and sovereign act of God to set a people aside for himself. Aren't you glad that God did that? I'm so thankful today that in spite of my sin, God chose to set his love upon me. That in spite of the fact that I was not looking for God or looking for a relationship with God, God sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost because that was me. Lost as I could be. So thankful for God's sovereign, loving act of setting me aside for himself. This word elect is really a word that should encourage. Peter uses it again. Peter's purpose in writing this letter is to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ. I've talked to so many people over the years, and boy, you use this word elect, and suddenly they are so discouraged. This word shouldn't discourage you. It ought to encourage you. God has chosen you. God has, again, called you to himself out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has sanctified you. He set you aside for himself. God has declared you righteous. God has given you the gift of eternal life. That's what God's done for you. All of that wrapped up in that word elect. That's what God does when he chooses us. So this word should encourage us. We were chosen by God. We're loved by God. We are safe, secure in the arms 
of God. Again, this great privilege that we enjoy, this great source of strength and, and security to be identified as one upon whom God has set his eternal love. John said it like this. He said, oh, what manner of love is this that we should be called sons and daughters of God? And, and, and what he meant by that was we don't see love like this every day. In other words, the love that God has expressed to us or demonstrated to us through sending his son to die for us, through making us his children, <laughs> is a love that's, wow, it's a rare thing. That's how much God loved you. He loved you. He chose you. You are one of his elect, and we should never be ashamed or unsettled by that word. And of course, Peter uses another word here, elect exiles. Exiles. Of course, the Bible describes us by various words uh, like this, strangers, aliens. Uh, again, we don't like to think of ourselves as strangers or aliens or exiles, but Again, Peter says we are God's elect exiles. And that word exiles carries the idea of a temporary resident, a sojourner, a pilgrim. Uh, and of course, we are exiles of the dispersion. That word was a technical term that was used of Jews who no longer lived in the homeland, no longer lived in Israel. Uh, and of course, Peter even gives us the, the, the geographical region in which these scattered Jews lived Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. I am no expert on geography, but I have read that the, the region encompassed by those places is a huge area, 300,000 square miles, as big as the southwest United States, as big as the country of Turkey. I mean, this was a large area, and there were Jews, there were God's people scattered throughout all of those areas. And again, today, God's people, we're scattered all over the world, right? Um, much larger area than 300 square miles, as big as that sounds. We're scattered all over the world. Again, by God's sovereign choice. Uh, so again, this idea of being a temporary resident or a, or a sojourner. You know, we've talked about the fact that that God is going to recreate or renovate the earth one day. There's going to be a, a new heaven and a new earth, right? And we are going to live upon the new earth, but not this one. And while we are here awaiting Christ's return, our heart longs as if, it, well, with the same longings of, a, of an exile, uh, this world just doesn't feel like home to us anymore. And I think we can all understand that to a certain extent. We should be able to understand that. Because we are, again, chosen by God, because we're God's elect exiles, what that means for us is that our real homeland is heaven. That's the place that our heart <clears throat> longs to be. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior. In other words, Jesus is in heaven, right? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And we are awaiting His return. We are citizens of heaven. The writer of Hebrews teaches that Christians are strangers and exiles on the earth. Seeking a homeland, a better country that is a heavenly one. 
We currently live outside our native land. So we long for, and again, the writer of Hebrews says that we are looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. So when Peter describes God's elect, God's chosen one, as exiles, that's what he's talking about. This world no longer feels like home to us. There's a, a better home that we are looking for. And, and let me just say this. The suffering that we are going to see described in this letter is not primarily suffering simply because we are away from our homeland. Uh, but it's because the world in which we now live finds our faith, especially when we choose to live it out, they find it off-putting and strange. Uh, again, Christianity has been widely accepted in the United States of America and other Western cultures. But when you begin to really live out your faith, those that don't know Jesus are going to think you're a little weird. They're going to think you think strange things. You do strange things. You spend your time in strange ways. They're not going to understand you. Uh, and they're not going to want to be with you all that much. And that's what Peter's talking about here. And that's the reality of our life in Christ. I, I believe that it should be, and, and really is, the common experience of many who live out their Christian faith in this world to begin to feel like they just don't really belong anywhere. You ever felt like that? I just, don't, I just don't belong here. I just don't belong. I'm not sure I belong anywhere. So Peter writes to encourage us if that's the way we're thinking. Don't forget, you belong to God. You do belong somewhere. Your citizenship's in heaven. You're a member of the household of God. Your fellow heirs with Jesus. Don't forget, you do belong. You belong to God. So, chosen exiles, elect exiles, be encouraged. God knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. He loves you. Again, the very next phrase lets us know that that's all true. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, look what it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreknowledge of God the Father. There's another one of those words that we often don't completely understand. <clears throat> and that word foreknowledge does not simply mean that God knows something in advance or he sees something in advance as, as it would happen. Many have said, oh yeah, I, I believe in God's choosing, God's election. God looked down through the corridors of time and he saw that, that brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so would, would, would believe on the name of Jesus and be saved. That's not what that word foreknowledge means. Certainly God foresaw everything. He knows everything, past, present, future. He knows everything. But the word foreknowledge, and really just, let's just deal with the word knowledge. That biblical word knowledge speaks of a relationship. What God did, what his foreknowledge did, it means that God entered into a loving relationship with his chosen ones beforehand. Now the question is, well, when was beforehand? Well, according to Scripture, God chose to set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. Now, if you want to be confused, go home and think about that today. 
But don't be too confused. Just know that that's the truth. If you want to wonder about when before the foundation of the world it was, well, spend the rest of the year thinking about that. But just know this. God didn't just know that one day you would receive Christ as Savior and Lord. God set His love upon you from eternity past. He's loved you with an everlasting love. That's why you chose to receive Christ. Because of what God did in choosing you according to His foreknowledge. In Ephesians 1, 4, the Bible says that God chose to set His love upon us again before the foundation of the world, that His love for us is an everlasting love from eternity past to eternity future. So that's, that's the work of God. And, and again, we're not going to go into it too much this morning. We're already running out of time. But we see a wonderful demonstration or illustration here of the, of the Trinity, the triune God, the work of God in salvation, the work of the Spirit of God in salvation, the work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in salvation. So we are saved, set aside, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So in conjunction with the Father's eternal choice of us, the Spirit then moves to set us aside for God. I mentioned that a moment ago. That's what it means to be a saint and what it means to be holy. God has set us aside for himself. It's the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Again, the word sanctification here is not talking about what we all, all, all too often refer as sanctification, that progressive work of, of growth, godliness, uh, maturity in the life of a Christian. This is talking about at the moment of our, our salvation, it's being set aside by God, again, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit moves to set us aside for God, thus making redemption effective in the life of His elect. And then, of course, all of this for obedience to Jesus Christ. That phrase or similar phrase is used often of what it means to believe the gospel, to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, these words speak of our response to God, our believing in the Son for salvation. And again, I want you to notice that our obedience to Jesus is the result, not the cause, of our election by the Father. All right? God chooses us, the Spirit sanctifies us, and then we obey Jesus Christ. And of course, for the sprinkling of His blood, these words speak of our atonement the forgiveness of our sin, our acceptance into the covenant family. And so there we see salvation. A description of what we are as God's chosen people. Saved, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the Spirit of God, responding in obedience to the Son of God and sprinkled with His blood. So in effect, what Peter is saying is, be comforted, my brothers and sisters. I know things are hard out there, but be comforted. You've been chosen by God. You've been set aside by the Spirit of God. You've been purchased by the Son of God. Everything's going to be all right. That's what he's saying. Everything is going to be all right. And then, of course, those familiar words. We see just words just like these so often in the epistles. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We define that word grace as the unmerited favor of God, and indeed it is. The love of God 
revealed in His choosing of us before the foundation of the world is not something that we earned or deserved. Simply by grace. God's unmerited favor. And implied in this word, and I believe the way Peter is using it specifically here, is the power of God for daily living. Yes, we need the grace of God in salvation. All right, But if you've experienced that, now what you need is God's grace for everyday living. And let me tell you, it's available to us. God provides us with grace, strength, power, wisdom for everyday living. No matter how difficult the trials of life may be, God's gracious power and presence are always available to us. That's what, that's what Peter's saying here. That's what the grace of God is. Psalm 46.1, it's an Old Testament text says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. That's what Peter's saying. God's grace wasn't just something that you needed when you got saved. It's something you need today. And it's every bit as available today as it was then. And not only grace, but peace. Boy, we could use a little peace in the world, couldn't we? Well, Christians, we have it. We have it. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not the elimination of struggle or tragedy. That's not what Peter's talking about. That was never true of Peter's generation. It's never been true of any generation of mankind upon this, this earth. Peace is the tranquility or the sense of calm in the midst of conflict, trial, suffering. And that's what God provides for us. <clears throat> the word implies a sense of well-being or wholeness in spite of suffering. According to Jesus, this kind of peace comes only from him. That's what he says in John's gospel. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give. This is a peace that only Jesus Amen. gives. This is, this is his peace. And it only comes to those who are in a relationship with him. Paul says, this peace belongs to God. I mean, isn't, that, isn't that strange to think of it that way? Peace is a possession of God. He owns it. And what that means is he can do with it as he wants. And that's what he does. The peace that we experience as Christians is a peace that God distributes according to his will. That's why it surpasses all understanding. We don't always understand how God does what he does, how he provides peace in the midst of a storm. We don't know how he does that. But he does. It's beyond human understanding. It surpasses human understanding. Further, those who possess this peace, according to Paul, have no need to be anxious about anything. How anxious have you been lately? Christian, you don't have any reason, no need to be anxious about anything. None. This peace, according to Paul in Philippians 4, 7, will guard your heart and your mind through any difficulty, through any distress, through any danger that you may face. So, Peter, again, keeping in mind what we're looking at here, this wasn't just a wishful thought from Peter. Oh, I hope that, that grace and peace are multiplied to you. Oh, no. He was saying grace and peace multi will be multiplied to you. This is God's word to us, not just Peter's hope for us. This was God's word to us. Grace and peace be multiplied to you.
course, the whole idea of these things being multiplied to us. As always with God, his gifts are not dispensed in a miserly way, but they're lavished upon his chosen ones. God's goodness always exceeds our expectation. So do you need some grace? Do you need some power? you need some strength to live today? God will give it to you generously, abundantly, in an overflowing, lavish way. You need some peace today? Have you been troubled? Are you anxious? Are you just flat scared about what the future might hold? The peace of God be multiplied to you.